Before we go to work, um, it's my turn to say I thank you for everything that you did uh, to make last Sunday evening uh, as special as it was. Uh, those of you who served everything from, from, from the food part to parking to cleanup, I mean, just so many people uh, willing uh, to give, and I, I just, you, you made it a great evening. Thank you for coming. Thank you. I mean, 16 baptisms, are you kidding me? It, it was just a blast. You should have had a great week no matter what after Sunday night, that, right? Those are the kind of moments that no matter what happens to you in the middle of the week, you just look back at, at that kind of experience and people being together and celebrating the kingdom of God. That was just fantastic. So I hope you really did have a, a good week. Even the royals are having a good week right? Two in a row. Somebody print some t-shirts. We're on a streak, right? It's awesome. It's awesome. All right. Here's where we're at. When the church is leaning into Jesus and therefore living on mission, we get to see people drawn to him. It's because Jesus is magnetic. He is magnetic. And so last week, we, we took a picture of the first followers of Jesus and how they experienced this together, everybody looking out for somebody. And, and, and when that happened, there was just this attraction. Now, when I say they were together, I mean this was bigger than a Sunday attraction because the Scripture last week taught us that they met together publicly and from house to house. They, they met together in, in big gatherings, sometimes in the temple courts where there could be just hundreds, if not even thousands of people. But then they also met in homes. Now, Heart of Life's version of this is very similar on purpose. We, we have gatherings where we come together like this, but then we also have what we call life teams. Life teams are that house-to-house -house piece of, of what we see done. Now, we've been doing life teams for many years, but all we did was copy what, from the time of the first believers, what they've been doing, so publicly and from house-to-house. -house. And so in those houses, this is the image that, that we've kind of set out for you. A, a life team represents those people who are brand-new believers, one of those chairs, it represents those people who have just stepped across the line. They, they are now saying, I want to follow Jesus. But, but also at the table are mature believers. People who maybe have been walking out, this walking this out for some time, but time alone doesn't, de doesn't determine maturity. It, it's, it's when they know how to, to feast on God's word and then that they, they, their lives are serving, their lives are going. Well, when you get this group of people together, feeding on God's word, caring for one another, and then their attention toward the empty chair. The empty chair that represents the mission of what God has called us to together, this empty chair represents those who have not yet put their trust in Jesus. So when you have groups of people Groups of people feasting on God's word, groups of people caring for each other, groups of people pushing each other, hey, let's get away from the table and let's focus on the mission that God has called us to. It works. It's been working from the very first group of Jesus followers. Last week, we, we talked about the fact that radical compassion is magnetic. When you start caring for one another in a radical way, it's magnetic. But we wrestled with this statement, radical compassion requires radical inconvenience. And we pretty much all agreed on that. Radical compassion requires radical convenience, and our problem is we are often allergic to inconvenience. And so our prayer last week began, God, will you change the do not disturb sign in my life? God, change my heart that I'm, that I'm willing to be disturbed. I am willing to be interrupted 
to do the very thing that Jesus said is most important, that is to love one another. It is to demonstrate a radical compassion that points to the truth that I belong to you, and when that happens, people are drawn to Jesus. Now, here's what I want to talk about today. When you hear that, maybe it leaves you feeling like, okay, radical compassion requires radical inconvenience, and although I'm allergic to inconvenience, I just feel like it's something I need to do. It's something I have to do. I just need to suck it up and be willing to be inconvenienced. Everybody knows this might be painful, but it's what Jesus said that I need to do. It's just the cost of following him. It's not always supposed to be fun. I just need to deal with it. If that's how it makes you feel, then what if I told you that it's actually quite the opposite. What if I told you that it's really not always as painful as we sometimes make it out to be? What what if I told you that this doesn't have to be just the, all right, this is what Jesus said do, and although nobody likes to do it, I know I just need to do it. What, What if I told you it could be quite the opposite. I want you to listen. A few verses I'm going to share, and then we're going to end up in a text where we're going to read it out for several verses. But uh, the first thing I want you to hear is what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Philippi. It's found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 25 is where we're going to start. Here's what he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain, Paul's saying, I'm staying with you, and I will continue All right? I'm I'm not leaving you. This is why I stick with you. For your progress and, what's the word? What's the word? Joy. Your joy in the faith. He's saying, look, this is why I'm here. and, And this is why I'm staying with you. This is really my job, and I would tell you this is, this is my job as your pastor. It is to work with you for your progress and your joy in the faith. Now, how do I help you pursue joy in the faith? It is pointing you toward God's Word, and it is pointing you toward the work of God. So the the Word of God and the work of God. It is knowledge and it is application. What if the radical inconvenience that is required for radical compassion actually results in radical joy. That's what I want you to consider. What if the radical inconvenience, you got to get, I mean, and it is inconvenient, you sometimes got to leave your program, and you got to go pay attention to somebody else's program, and and then you can't even move at the pace that you want to move, you got to move at their pace, but what if the radical inconvenience that is required for radical compassion actually results in radical joy? Not a, okay. This is what Jesus said we got to do, and even though we don't like it, let's, let's just do it because it's part of the cost. What if it actually results in radical joy? And I would submit to you that over and over in Scripture, that's the picture we're given. Think about what Jesus said. He said, you'll know that you love God when you keep my commands, his commands, And his commands were, I want you to love each other. I want you to love God with all your heart. I want you to to, to love your neighbor. I want you to love one another. And then, this is what he said in John chapter 15. So that through, whoop, there we go. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your, what? Joy may be complete. There it is again. He said, he said I, I, I've told you all this 
I've told you all this. I've, I've told you. If you want to know if you love God, then you're going to follow what, what I tell you. And what I tell you is you love God, you love your neighbor, you love one another. Radical compassion requires radical inconvenience. But I'm telling you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. I'm telling you, that's what Jesus wants you to know. That's what I want you to know. And so maybe we can picture it this way. It is true, you need something from people in order to really progress in your faith and to find joy. You do. You need something from people. There is an American line of thinking that goes like this. Me, my Bible, and God, and I'm good. Me, my Bible, and God, and I'm good. And I'm telling you, no, you're not. No, you're not. That's not the complete equation that God designed. You you were never intended to do this without the fellowship of other people who also believe God's word and want to trust God with all their heart. Now, I think when, when, when the enemy hears somebody say, It's me, my Bible, and God, and I'm good. I think an enemy celebrates that because he knows at some point, life's going to hit you. At some point, life is going to hit you. And when it hits you, an enemy begins to make you think you are alone. You got you, your Bible, and God. But he will make you think you are alone. He did it with some big boy prophets in the Bible. And they fell for it. He said, you're the only one. Nobody else. Nobody else cares. Nobody else cares. It's just you. And if the big boy prophets will fall for it, then I promise you, you and I would fall for it. I think an enemy loves to hear us say, it's me, my Bible, And God, but that's not the way you were designed. It is true. You want your Bible, and you want God. But he also has designed biblical accountability. Biblical accountability. Which does not mean bring out the police force. That does not bring, mean bring on the police and, and you, you're the one who, who you, you tell me everything I do wrong. No, biblical accountability means I am sitting down at the table with a group of people who, who I am willing to say, will you help me finish strong? Will you help me? Will you help me? Live faithfully what God has called me to live. Will you help me love my family? Will you help me do this right? Will you help me be on mission? Will you help me? Here's what I have learned. The older I get, the older I get, the more I realize how few people finish strong. They start strong. They don't finish strong. And I think a lot of the reason becomes that we get to this place that we think we're so mature and we think we got enough knowledge that now I just need me, my Bible, and God, and I got this. And I'm I'm saying, no, we are built to need relationships, and that's where those structures of life team provide that part that we need. But that's not the whole picture. 
The picture is we have a need to get, that's what I just told you, plus a calling to give. And we got to see both of those pictures. I have a need to get. I, I need relationships. I, I need you to, to help me to finish strong. But there is also a calling to give. Your maturity and your joy is not found in just you getting what you need. You, your maturity and your joy is also found in you giving some right stuff. Let me show you again. The Apostle Paul, he models this for us over and over again, this time to the church in Ephesus. It's found in Acts chapter 20. This is what he says to them, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, you go quoting Jesus, you're getting pretty serious, right? Paul's like, anybody remember what Jesus always said? More blessed to give than to receive. Do you need to receive? Yes, you do. You, you are built to be a part of receiving. You are, you are built to be in these relationships. But here's what most of us know. By experience, even if it's just a little experience, but we also know from the Bible, the path of giving self is the path of greatest joy. Come on. Taking does not make your life happier, does it? It doesn't. It's when you give. That's when your life is the happiest. That's when it is the most satisfying. That's when it becomes richer. That's when it is solid. Now, to do that is not free from the risk of pain, but it is the path of greatest joy. And if you are a Christian, that's who you are. If you are a Christian, you are a giver by nature. That is a part of the miracle that he has worked in you, that, that you now give. This is who you are. You may not be fully living that out yet, but this is who you are. It is a part of your nature. It is a part of your identity. Jesus once said, whoever believes in me, Scripture says, rivers of living water will flow out of them. It's quite an image. He said, those who believe in me, those who belong to me, those whom now, he was talking, Holy Spirit lives within you, and he says, rivers of living water flow out of you. What makes a spring or a river happy? You let it flow, right? You stop them up, it gets stagnant. After a while, it stinks. That's kind of what our lives can look like when we only live one piece of where joy is found, when the only thing that I'm living out is get. Very soon, it kind of smells like this. And I can't figure out why I'm not experiencing more joy in my life. But when you let that river flow, that's what it's meant to do. It stays clear and healthy and life-giving and happy. And I'm, I'm telling you, this is the case for all of us, all followers of Jesus. I want to show you one more series of, of, of scripture where Paul, again, walks this out in a, a very practical way. And here's why I'm doing it. Because just in case you have convinced yourself that you are too mature to worry about a need for people, you need to hear what we're about to read. If you have convinced yourself that, that you got too much faith under your belt to have to worry about what we're talking about here, then you, you need this. If you 
really believe that you, your Bible, and God is okay, then you need to hear what the Apostle Paul unpacks. For originally a church in a place called Thessalonica, it's a funny name, it's a big old long name, and we see the letters that Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica in Thessalonians in your New Testament. There's first and second Thessalonians. Now here's what's happened. Paul helped plant a church there. But after planting a church there, there is a group of people who want to undermine and destroy what's been started there. That will always be the case with the work of God. There will always be an enemy. There will always be adversary. And so that's what's happening here. But here's, here's what they do. They don't go after Paul's teaching. They don't go after Paul's doctrine. They go after Paul's character. They go after him personally. And they accuse him of greed. They accuse him of self-glory. And so when Paul writes to them this letter of 1 Thessalonians, he wants to remind them of what they know they have experienced with him. Check it out, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says, you know. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. You know. Why did he say you know? Because he wants the defense is to remind them of what they already have seen from Paul's life. In, in the next 12 verses, six times he says you know, or you remember, or you have witnessed. Six times he says you know. Verse 2. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, different place. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means before Paul was even at Philippi or even at Thessalonica, he had already had some battles with people. He had already experienced people trying to hurt him, people trying to shut down what he had done. He knew, he knew that if he took such a step with, with the Thessalonians, if he shared the gospel with them, if he, if he shares his life with them, he knew that there was going to be pain. It was risky for him to do, but he did it. And I'm saying it is part of the question that I am called to ask you today. Will you? You're like, I just, I just don't know if I can, I just don't know if I can, I just don't know if I can ever really risk again, Jeff. I mean, there have been some times in my life when I got really close to some people and they betrayed me. There were some times that I, I got really close I, I trusted it should have been a circumstance, and they betrayed me. And you know what? I, I, now I, I think it's just going to be me, my Bible, and God. I'm saying Paul knew. I'm going to say to a degree greater than most of us know what it's like to put your life on the line and to risk with people and to be betrayed even to be attacked. And you know what he did next? He trusted. He trusted the lives of the next people who needed to hear good news of Jesus. He risked. And the question is, will you? If you don't, for the rest of your life, you're going to be asking the question, how come I just never really experienced joy? How come I just never seem to have this joy in my life? I'm not talking about like all the circumstances being happy. That's not what I'm talking about. There are times that circumstances, happiness is like, no, because here's the hurt. But I'm saying joy. You, you know there, there is a time that there is joy in your life even when the circumstances, you, you can't really explain it. It's supernatural. Paul said, here's what happened to me before, and I knew it going in. 
but Paul also knew how he was designed. And he was called to trust again. He was called to risk again. Here's my prayer. God, would you make the groups of people that meet together in Heart of Life, God, would you make life teams here a place where people will trust. And then they'll trust again. Will you make it a place where people will trust their lives? And then make it a place where they will trust again because somewhere along the way you know like somebody's going to kind of hurt. You do know that, right? Along the way, there's going to be some times that, that we hurt, but God, make us a place that we'll just continue to trust. Verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Paul says, this was about the truth, and this was about purity in my life. That word purity, impure is the word he uses, was regularly used by Paul for sexual sin. When he used that word, he was usually, usually referring to sexual sin. So this is kind of how it reads. He says, when I was with you, I didn't mislead you. I didn't get sexually involved with anyone, nor did I try to deceive you in any way. It's like, dang, Paul could have wrote that for today, couldn't he? He did. He did. In our culture, like I, I didn't mislead you, didn't, didn't fall into any sexual sin, I didn't try to deceive anybody. He's like, and you know it. He's like, you know it. We were together. You know this. Verse 4. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. People pleasers become phony. People please, if you, if you live to please people, you will usually become phony because there is a insecurity behind all of that that says, I need your approval. And so the angle that I'm going to show you is the angle of me that I hope you will approve of because that's what I'm after. I, I want your approval more than I want God's approval. And so I'll show you this side. I'm not going to show you this side. But I I'll show you this side because it's the side that I think you, you would most approve of me, which means you never actually get to know the real me. And Paul says, you know I wouldn't have any part of that. I, I want to encourage some of you to relax in Jesus and be who you are, warts and all. Because here's the secret. We all got warts. Now, we, we, right, we, we all got warts. We don't want to see your real, like, physical warts, but we're okay with seeing, we're, we're okay with seeing your life warts. We all got them. It's the craziest thing when we walk around pretending like we don't. Just would you relax in Jesus, the one who was most perfect and requires perfection, and yet he loved you enough that he would do what he did for you on a cross that you might be forgiven, given his righteousness. Now he embraces you. He accepts you. He has forgiven you. Would you just start pleasing him and quit worrying about living for the approval of everybody else. You don't have to hide your warts anymore. Paul's like, that's how I lived in front of you. And can I tell you, it is a beautiful thing when that starts to happen in a group of people where they trust each other enough that everybody knows there's warts. It's beautiful. 
verse 5. You know that we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. He says, you know, to use flattery means to use language not for the sake of truth, but to use it for a selfish reason. That's flattery. And what what they've accused Paul of is, is buttering them up as a cloak for greed. And he says, you and God know that is not true. Verse 6, verse 6. For we were not looking for praise from people, just in case you didn't hear me say that earlier, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Let's keep going. Instead, we were like young children among you. What is it about young children that makes them so precious? It is a simple trust. Right? Jesus said, except you become like a child, you don't enter the kingdom, right? It's that simple trust. We became like young children among you just as a nursing mother cares for her children. Verse 8, let's keep going. This is, this is the place. So we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you. You ready? Here's the line. This is it. This is, this is the day. This is the point this is, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm sort of yelling at you for, for 45 minutes for. This is it. I was delighted to share with you not only the gospel. Now, if we don't share the gospel, we've, we've come up empty. The gospel, it is the power of God, right, for, for salvation. This, this is the good news. It is that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. Third day, he arose. That's the gospel. But he says, I not only shared the gospel but our, our what? Can you see the word? Our what? Our lives as well. Not just the gospel, but we shared our lives. The word that's translated lives here, some 50 plus times in the New Testament is translated soul. In other words, I, I, I shared my soul with you. Now, when we use that phrase, that's not light, is it? I mean, it's typically connected to something that is, that is of significance to us. When we say, I shared my soul, that's what Paul says here. I didn't just share the gospel with you. We shared our very souls. You didn't just get the message, but you also got the messenger. You didn't just get the words, but you also got our lives. This wasn't just about doctrine, but you also got our heart. And that's what I'm talking to you about today in the value of being a part of of a small group of people, even though you don't think you need it. I know it. You got enough faith under your belt. You don't, you don't need other people. You got you, your Bible, and God. And you're going to do this differently than the entire rest of God's creation. Even though he designed it, you got it. I hear what you're saying. But we're going with God. We're going with God in that you don't have just a need to get. You have a calling to give. A calling to give of your life. And Paul models it. And I'm saying Paul's kind of a powerful guy. He's an apostle. He's an apostle. And this is what he said of himself. I I, I want you to consider maybe is for you too. Maybe it's what you're called to. Even those whom God has given significant influence, with influence comes power, and power is dangerous if it is not lived out in the context of will you help me finish strong?
Nothing wrong with influence, nothing wrong with power. Everything wrong with doing that by yourself. Everything wrong with doing that by yourself. So, so here, here's, I'm, I'm telling you, this, this is like, in my life, this is what this text talks about. And I hope it does for you over and over. And again, the older I get, the louder this rings. Jeff, don't ever think that you can live a hidden, unaccountable, isolated, unknown life. It is not enough for you simply to share a message without giving the messenger. You can't just do the job. You, you can't just perform, right, the, the operation. No, this is about the message and it's about the messenger. You, to be real, it is to be authentic, it is to be what you are. It is no hiding, no posing, no posturing. He's like, this, this is how you do it. You, you share with the people not only the gospel but your very soul. Paul put aside a position of power to let him feel and to demonstrate what he describes a mother-like affection for those in Thessalonica. He opened their hearts to them. He exchanged a relationship of power for a relationship of affection. That means he made himself vulnerable. Please don't ever think you are above this. Please don't ever think you are too sophisticated. Please don't ever think you are too self-sufficient that you, your Bible, and God is enough. You were designed to risk, to love, to give. Let's wrap this up. Verse 9. Verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardships. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Paul's like, you, you remember what it was like here. Here's when Paul would go into a new place to preach the gospel, like starting a new church, he would not ask for, for money. What would happen is the already existing churches would support what Paul was doing in those new territories so that he was taken care of, but he never had to give the appearance as though he was just there for money. That's cool. He's like, you know that. He's like, you know that. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. And you're like, well, that sounds a little arrogant. Paul's not claiming to be sinless. He's not, he's not claiming to be sinless. I think all he's saying is we honored God, we treated people right, and we gave no one a legitimate reason to blame us. How beautiful is that? How compelling is that? Has anybody ever considered you can be real and be good? He's like, I was real with you, and it was good. It is possible. Verse 11. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. We've already had the mom side of affection. Now now we're on the father. Verse 12. Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. He said, I I not only felt and demonstrated what what a mom would feel and demonstrate an affection for you, but he said, I I also felt and I demonstrated what what a father feels, that I so wanted to just keep encouraging you. I so wanted to just keep building you up. I wanted to leave a legacy, but the legacy is not that they remember him. The legacy is that they remember the greatness of God. God calls us into that level of relationships. I I realized that today 
doesn't involve a lot of somersaults. Um, it doesn't involve a lot of experiments and object lessons on stage. It really is just this very simple fact that God is calling all of us to that level of relationships with one another. Your need to get plus your calling to give equals joy. And look, I, some of you are fighting the fact that your mom, your mom sat you down one day, she sat you down one day and she said, honey, I'm going to give you some advice. You just need to take care of you. Because nobody else is going to do that. You just need to watch out for you. You just, you just take care of you. you. You get your own back. Now, come on. You, you can love your mama, but if what she says contradicts what Jesus says, it is really smart to go with Jesus. You just take care of you, and Jesus goes, nope. Nope. You want joy? If you want joy, you got to risk. You want joy? you got to get close enough to some people that you can share your heart, warts and all. You can't have significant relationships without trust. And if you're saying today, Jeff, I, I just feel like I don't have anything to give, then on the authority of God's word, I'm going to say to you, if you are a Christian, that is not true. I just don't feel like I have anything to give. I mean, why, I, I don't know what I would offer to those. On the authority of God's word, if you are a Christian, that is not true. You, Jesus lives within you. God's spirit is at work in you. You, you, have, you have spiritual gifts. You, you are a river, he says, that flows from within you. You may not be living it out yet, and it may be because you have yet to be willing to risk. But it is who you are, and it's what you're called to. And I'm saying, come on, for the sake of the empty chair, risk, risk. Most every week, somewhere in one of the gatherings, there's somebody present with us that someone has been praying for and inviting and praying for and inviting again and praying for and begging and praying for and bribing to come. Every week, there's some, typically somebody here that somebody has worked years to get them to try. And often the response is, okay, I'll give it one shot. One shot. My point is, on any given Sunday, when you walk in here, it's somebody's one shot to see if God's people really do love like I've heard Jesus loves. Because if they don't, then I'm just going to chalk it up to this ain't real. This ain't real. 
So I'm saying the risk that you take, even when we come together in these gatherings, the risk that you take to get up from where you're seated and walk across a room and extend a hand to, to just shake somebody's hand that you've never seen before, to, to say, isn't it a great day? It's so good to see you. Hey, nice to meet you. Uh, whatever, whatever, just whatever you do with a smile on your face that says to somebody, I am risking. I am getting up from my safe little territory, and I am moving over to unfamiliar territory. It is all the way on the other side of the room. And it really is nice to meet you today. My name's Jeff. You never know. It was their one shot. I'm saying the same thing happens in life teams. People, people, people ask and they invite and sometimes people will come to a life team before they'll come to this big old scary thing. Sometimes they'll step into a home if they trust you, not knowing if they trust a guy standing on a stage, but they might trust you if they know you and they'll step into your house and suddenly they find themselves sitting around the table with a group of people and they're saying, I'll give it one shot. And when they see these people not only speak a message but share their souls as well. It is magnetic. It is magnetic. It's like I found myself in a group of people where they were not like, they weren't pretending. And, and they weren't posing. They, they weren't just giving me the angle. They, 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 they actually were, were like honest with each other and I'm going to go beyond that, and I'm going to say the same thing happens when you, when you later see them in a restaurant, you later see them at Walmart, you later see them wherever, and you recognize the face, and you may not remember the name, and oh, it's the risk. It's like, because I should have remembered their name, so what am I going to do? I'm going to duck behind aisle three, because I can't, I can't, I can't remember their name, right? And so it's kind of risky. It's like, I, I saw them at church. I, I remember talking to them there, but, but I, oh man, I can't remember, and rather than embarrass me. No. It's the opportunity outside the walls of where it's supposed to be, they see somebody who will even risk embarrassment to say, tell me, tell me your name one more time. We, 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 I met you at church, and, and that was really cool. Tell me your name one more time. And, man, it really was cool. And, and, and this time I'm, I'm, I'm writing it down, and I got it. I, I just risk, risk for the sake of those who have not yet put their trust in Jesus. One day we, we will see it so clearly and we will wish that we had risked it all. Please hear me, this is not a matter of personality. This is a matter of faith. This is not about, well, my personality is not. No. This is a matter of your faith is. Because some of y'all are blessed with being extroverts. And all us introverts would clap for you, but we don't really want to clap in front of you. So, I mean, congratulations. You're, you're an extrovert. You don't have any problem with that kind of stuff, right? So some of you, you got the, you, I mean, you, you just, you're comfortable with all that. And some of us, it's something we really have to be intentional with. I don't mind standing in front of thousands of people and, and delivering a message. But I'm promising you that, that the struggle for me is I don't get energy from big groups of people. My, an introvert is, is renewed by being in smaller groups of people. It's, 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 and so I, I get it. And, and somebody reminded me this week, it's like, you know, Sometimes you see churches where if the pastor is a really, really, you know, strong extrovert, you will see the people be really friendly and they'll, they'll be really, but if he's not, then, then they tend to not be. And, and I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> but it's like, you know what? All that means is if we're going to do this right, um, 
you're like not going to be able to just totally piggyback me. It's going to have to be like real between you and Jesus and know that I'm working on it too. I'm always working on it. I've come to realize that the empty chair is worth me pushing through what is not my first inclination to do. But, but the empty chair is what changes that for me. It's like, who cares? Who, who cares? I, okay, I'm, I'm pushing through because, because this, this is what matters. And it's about how Jesus loves this person. And I love him too. It's just pushing through the inconvenience, pushing through the risk. I've seen you do it. And when you do it, it is magnetic. Somehow, I am laying my piece out there, saying this is, this is me. And I'm saying if together we say, God, radical compassion requires radical inconvenience. God, would you make us a people who radically love. And the beautiful peace that's going to follow is radical joy. And we become these people walking around with smiles on our face. That would be odd in this world. We're walking around with smiles on our face because there's a joy that results. And come on, most of you don't know it. You don't know it because you've never quite ever put your soul out there that far. And maybe it was because mom told you a long time ago, you, you can't trust people because if you trust people, they're going to hurt you. Your mom was right about that part. Jesus actually said it too. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Even Jesus had a Judas at the table, right? But Jesus kept trusting. And it wasn't just the message. It was his soul. It was his life. May we become a place of love that is so radical that we trust him and give of ourselves to see people drawn to Jesus. It is the path of deepest, strongest joy.